today I have to tell you something. Pastor Pablo said I'm going to preach the word. This message, I have to tell you, out of 40 years of preaching, contains less word, the word of God, than any message I've ever done. And so for those of you that are really looking forward to digging into your Bibles, you can just set them on the seat beside you because we're going to be talking about a lot of things today that aren't in the Bible but talk about the Bible. We have been in a series for the past few weeks about what is truth. How do we face skeptics of our faith? How do we face skeptics in our world that don't believe that Jesus existed, that don't believe the Bible is true? We've talked about some of that uh, a couple of weeks ago. And today we're going to begin to approach the subject is, is there evidence for Jesus outside the Bible? So many of us, when we're sharing our faith and having these conversations, we talk about Jesus and we talk about the Jesus of the Bible and we're referring them to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And, and so many of them say, well, that's a circular argument. You're using a word that I'm not sure is true to prove a man that I'm not sure is true. And so how do we know that Jesus existed from things that were written outside of the Bible? And so this morning I want to dive into this. We have a theme verse for this, uh, this theme, and it's been found in John chapter 14, verse 6 and this is the only scripture verse you're going to hear today. When Jesus declared, I am the way and the truth. In other words, truth emanates from me. There is no truth found in the world except through me and the life. And he makes some enormous claims about himself. I'm assuming that most of us here are the beneficiaries of these things. But we live in a world today where there are many skeptics that believe that Jesus was a mythical figure, a folklore character such as King Arthur, where stories are created about him, but they're certainly not real. And the question that we often are asked by people is, can Jesus, can his existence be proven, not with your Bible, but with things that were written about him from other places. And I know that I have mentioned a ton of books. And, and again, if you have your QR code, you can look at that because you are not going to have enough time today to write down all of the quotes that I have and the places. So for those of you that are not QR code people, we have them all printed in the back and you can take a copy of that with you. I do not have time to go through all of the references that are listed there, but I do want to uh, at least make it available to you. But I'd like to credit somebody whose name is J. Warner Wallace. He wrote a book, The Person of Interest and Why Jesus Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. He also wrote Cold Case Christianity. And the perspective that I love about it for him is that he is a cold case detective an atheist. And so he thought that he would approach Scripture from as if he was trying to solve a case. And for those of you that love that kind of reading, you will love, love digging into this book that he's got because much of what I'm taking today comes from some of his thoughts. But the gospel accounts that we stand upon are not the only descriptions of Jesus. In fact, there are non-Christian descriptions of Jesus from the late first century to the fifth century where non-biblical accounts add credence to what we know to be true of Scripture. And today I'm going to go through about 11 different sources with you, and I want to do it as quickly as I can and as thoroughly as I can. And some of you are going to be bored out of your minds because this isn't your thing, and some of you are going to love this. I already greeted some guests this morning that were first time here, and I said, please don't judge this message as the way church always is here. But it is important for us to be able to have a foundation that we can speak to people as to the reality of Jesus. 
So I want to share with you today some things that pagans wrote and said about Jesus. Non-Christian sources, those that were hostile to Christianity, and yet in their words we begin to find things that validate those that we know to be true in Scripture. The first person that I want to mention today is named Thallus. Thallus wrote in 52 AD. He perhaps was the earliest secular writer to mention Jesus, and his writings are so ancient that they don't even exist anymore. The reason that we know of his writings are because other authors of the time quoted him because he had so much to say about Jesus. And so Thallus, who previously was trying to explain away the darkness that occurred at Jesus' crucifixion, wrote this. On the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness. The rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. This was written by Julius Africanus. And by the way, some of these old names are hard to pronounce. If I mess them up and you know the right way, just give me grace. And some of them I may just give you their initials. If we only had a little bit more of what Thallus had written could be found because he seems to have written a lot about Jesus and the confirmation, but what we know from his writings is that Jesus lived, he was crucified, and there was an earthquake, and there was darkness at his crucifixion from somebody that was not a Christian that wrote about this. Another author, and by the way, I want to encourage you to take these names and look them up. There is unbelievable information on the World Wide Web for you to look up and do some of the study. Another author was named Tacitus from 56 to 120 AD. He was known for his analysis and his examination of historical documents and is one of the most trusted of the ancient historians. And he wrote as it related to Nero blaming a fire in Rome on the Christians. He said this, consequently to get rid of the report Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate. The, and a most mischievous superstition thus chucked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. In this account, Tacitus confirms several historical elements of the biblical narrative. Number one, that Jesus lived in Judea. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate had followers that were persecuted for their faith in Jesus. Another author, the third one that I would speak about, Mara Bar Serapion. And sometime after 70 AD, this Syrian philosopher was writing to encourage his son, comparing the life of persecuted philosophers, and in that he wrote about Jesus as well. And in this, we draw from the fact that Jesus was a real person and had an amazing kind of influence when this is what he wrote to his son. What benefit did the Athenians obtain by putting Socrates to death? Famine and plague came upon them as a judgment for their crime. Or the people of Samos for burning Phythagorius, 
in one moment their country was covered with sand, or the Jews by murdering their wise king. After that, their kingdom was abolished. God rightly avenged these men. The wise king lived on in the teachings that he enacted. From this account, we can add to our understanding of Jesus that he was a wise and influential man who died for his beliefs. The Jewish leadership was somehow responsible for Jesus' death and that Jesus' followers adopted his beliefs and lived their lives accordingly. This leads us to the fourth reference that we would have today, a man by the name of Phlegon. In a matter that was similar to Thamos, uh, to Thallius in the beginning, much of his writings had disappeared, but he was quoted by so many different authors that mention him as a true historian. And so he mentions the darkness surrounding the crucifixion in an effort to try to explain it in a non-Christian way. He records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar, at a full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun unexplained from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. In other words, he goes, I don't know how to explain this eclipse because most of them don't last three hours like this one did. He also is mentioned by another author named Origen, who was a church theologian and scholar. And he said this, Now, Phlegon, in the 13th or 14th book, I think of his chronicles, not only ascribed to Jesus a knowledge of future events, but also testified that the resulting things that took place corresponded to his predictions. He couldn't explain the eclipse lasting so long. He couldn't explain how Jesus had this knowledge of things that seemed to take place. And then he wrote this, Jesus, while alive, was of no assistance to himself, but that he arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed his hands had been pierced by nails. And so from this author, who's not a Christian, not a believer, outside of the Bible, we can begin to understand these things, that Jesus had the ability to accurately predict the future, that he was crucified under the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and that after he was resurrected from the dead, he showed people the scars that were on his hands. The fifth person I want to quote is Pliny the Younger. Early Christians were often described in unique ways. And in a letter to the Romans, Pliny the Younger wrote this. They, speaking of Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. And they bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, but to never commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then to reassemble to partake of food, but the food of an ordinary and innocent kind. I like this guy. This is where we get the idea that churches should eat together. This is what he described as the early church's activity. So he tells us, an outside source, that the first Christians believed that Jesus was God. 
the first Christians upheld after coming in contact with his grace and being changed by him, a very high moral code, and these early followers met regularly at certain times to worship Jesus as God. The sixth person I want to quote is Suetonius. Suetonius was a Roman historian, an analyst, a writer for the imperial house under the emperor Hadrian. His writings describe the treatment of Christians under this emperor. And he repeats a little bit of some of the things that were said that because the Jews at Rome caused constant disturbances at the instigation of Christus or Christ, he, Claudius, expelled them from the city of Rome. This expulsion took place in 49 AD. And in another work, he goes on to write about the fire that destroyed Rome, that Nero inflicted punishment on the Christians, described as a sect given to a new and mischievous religious belief. There is so much that we can learn from Suetonius as it relates to the life of early Christians that I would encourage you to look him up and examine some of the writings that he has. Because from him we learn that Christians were committed to their belief that Jesus was God and as such withstood torment and punishment from the Roman Empire. We understand that Jesus had a curious and yet immediate impact upon those who would choose to follow him from the moment that they became believers and that that belief empowered them to die courageously for what they knew to be true. And then there's this unique character by the name of Lucian of Samosata. If he were to be described today, he would be on late night TV because he was a satirist. He would make fun of Christians. He would be the comedian of the day. And so much of the things that he wrote were just joking and mocking Christians and those that believed in Jesus Christ. He wrote some unbelievably harsh things as it related to Jesus. But the interesting thing is he never, ever referred to Jesus as a fictional character. In fact, he never referred to the church, the early church, or those that believed him as fictional characters. But this is what he wrote. The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time which explains their contempt of death and their voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All of this is quite taken on faith with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike and regard them merely as common property. From this account intended to make fun of Christians in Christ, we learn that Jesus taught about repentance. We learned that there was a family of God that developed among the followers of Jesus Christ that was very strong. It was very strong. 
These teachings were quickly adopted by Jesus' followers, and they exhibited them in their lifestyle everywhere they went around the world. Another writer by the name of Celsus in 175 A.D., and this is the last writer that I will mention that is, was not Jewish. And the account that he gave was quite antagonistic to the claims of the gospel. But in his criticisms, he unknowingly affirmed and reinforced biblical authors and their content. In fact, if you study his writings, there were more than 80 times that he referred to different gospel quotes, biblical quotes out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, confirming their early appearance in history. In fact, in addition, he admits that the miracles of Jesus were generally believed in the time in which he lived. And here is what he wrote. Jesus had come from a village in Judea and was born the son of a poor Jewish who was gaining her living by the work of her own hands. His mother had been turned out of doors by her husband, who was a carpenter by trade, on being convicted of adultery with a soldier named Panthera, which in our interpretation would be Panther, which you will hear about in a little bit. Being thus driven out by her husband and wandering about in disgrace, she gave birth to Jesus, a bastard. Jesus, on account of his poverty, was hired to go out to Egypt. While there, he acquired certain magical powers which the Egyptians pride themselves on possessing. He returned home highly elated at possessing these powers and on the strength of them gave himself out to be a god. Celsus admits repeatedly in the things that he wrote that Jesus was born of a virgin, but then he argues of this supernatural account could not possibly happen. And he offers an idea that Jesus was the illegitimate son of a man named Panthera, who was a soldier at the time. And this was constantly referred to throughout other people's writings as they took it from him. But in the middle of his writings, he makes several important claims that Jesus had an earthly father who was a carpenter that Jesus possessed unusual, magical powers and that Jesus claimed to be God. And then we move from that realm of non-Jewish authors into the realm of those that were Jewish at the time who likewise did everything in their power to discount the claims of Jesus. And they began in some very hostile ways to describe Jesus, but in doing so, in the systems of their writing, trying to discount Jesus and Christianity, ultimately in some very harsh ways, in some very critical ways, and in some very demeaning ways, actually brought proof to the things that we believe in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. One of the writers that many of you have already talked to me about, asking me, if, hey, have you ever heard of this man? His name is Josephus. Josephus was from 37 to 101 A.D., and he was more detailed than any other non-biblical historian. Josephus writes about Jesus in the antiquity of the Jews in 93 AD. He was born just four years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Josephus was a consultant for the Jewish rabbis 
at a very, very early age. In fact, he became a Galilean military commander at the age of 16 years old. He was an eyewitness to much of what he recorded in first century A.D. And under the rule of the Roman emperor, Vespasian, Josephus was allowed to write the history of the Jews. This history included several passages about Christians, one of which he describes the death of John the Baptist, one of which he describes and mentions the execution of James, the brother of Jesus, and in a final passage which he describes Jesus as a wise man and the Messiah. And here's what he writes. Now around this time lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was a worker of amazing deeds and was a teacher of the people who gladly accepted the truth. He won over both many Jews and many Greeks. Pilate, when he heard of him, accused him by the leading men among us and condemned him to the cross. But those who had first loved him did not cease loving him. To this day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not disappeared. There are many ancient versions of Josephus' writings which are even more explicit in the nature of Jesus' miracles and his life and his status as Christ. But from this text, we can conclude Jesus lived in Palestine, was a wise man and was a teacher, worked amazing deeds, was accused by the Jews, crucified under Pilate, and had followers that were called Christians that stay to this day. The tenth reference that I would like to give you is from the Jewish Talmud. While the earliest Talmudic writings of the Jewish rabbis appear in the fifth century, the tradition of the rabbinic authors indicates that they were transmitting the truths that they had been told and had been written from them from the early periods. In fact, so many of them didn't even want to mention the name of Jesus in their writing that they gave him code names. Names such as Balaam, or Ben-Stada, or a certain one. And so, as you are studying these writings, you may see these names pop up and understand that these were code words for Jesus. So, for our purposes this morning, I'm going to be very, very conservative and limit my explanations of the passages that refer to Jesus in a more direct way. One of the things that was written is, Jesus practiced magic and led Israel astray. And then perhaps the most famous Talmudic passage about Jesus said this, it was taught on that day before the Passover, they hanged Jesus. A herald went before him for 40 days proclaiming he will be stoned because he practiced magic and enticed Israel to go astray. Let anyone who knows anything in favor come forward and plead for him. But nothing was found in his favor and they hanged him on the day before the Passover. From this passage that mentions Jesus by name, we conclude, again, they described him as Jesus having magical powers that led traditional Jewish people away from their beliefs and that he was executed on the day before the Passover. In their writings, unwittingly, they confirm that Jesus is alive, was alive and lived, and that the Gospels are true. And then lastly, the Toldot Yeshu is a medieval Jewish retelling of the life of Jesus. It is completely anti-Christian to be sure. 
In fact, if you look it up, there are many retellings or many versions of this retelling where the religious leaders at the time had to rewrite the story of Jesus so that it would fulfill their things to dismiss him. And I want to read one of those to you this morning. Jesus here is mentioned as Yehoshua or Yeshu. But listen closely to the way the Jewish people the Jewish leaders at the time rewrote the Gospels that we know to discount Jesus. In the year 3671 or 90 BC, in the days of King Janus, the, a great misfortune befell Israel when there arose a certain disreputable man from the tribe of Judah, whose name was Joseph Pandera. He lived at Bethlehem in Judah. Near his house dwelt a widow and her lovely and chaste daughter named Miriam, who we know as Mary. Miriam was betrothed to Johanna of the royal house of David, a man learned in the Torah and God-fearing. At the close of a certain Sabbath, Joseph Pandera, attractive and like a warrior in appearance, having gazed lustfully upon Miriam, knocked on the door of her room and betrayed her by pretending that he was her betrothed husband, Johanan. Even so, she was amazed at the improper conduct and submitted only against her will. Therefore, when Johanan came to her, Miriam expressed astonishment at the behavior so foreign to his character. It was thus that they both came to know the crime that Joseph Pandera and the terrible mistake on the part of Miriam. Miriam gave birth to a son and named him Yehoshua after her brother. This name later deteriorated to Yeshu. Yeshu is the Jewish name for Jesus, and it means that his name may be blotted out. On the eighth day, he was circumcised. And when he was old enough, the lad was taken by Miriam to the house of study to be instructed in the Jewish tradition. One day, Yeshu walked in front of the sages with his head uncovered, showing shameful disrespect. At this, the discussion arose as to whether this behavior did not truly indicate that Yeshu was an illegitimate child and the son of Nida. Moreover, the story tells that while the rabbis were discussing the law, he gave his own imprudent interpretation of the law. And in ensuing debate, he held that Moses could not be the greatest of the prophets because he had to receive counsel from Jethro. This led to further inquiry as to his history, and it was discovered through Rabbin Shimeon ben Shita that he was an illegitimate son of Joseph Pandera. Miriam admitted it, and this became known, and it was necessary then for Yeshu to flee to Upper Galilee after King Janus, his wife Helena, ruled over all of Israel. The story goes on. In the temple was found to be the foundation stone on which were engraved the letters of God's ineffable name. Whoever learned the secret of the name and its use would be able to do whatever he wished. Therefore, the sages took measures so that no one should gain this knowledge. Lions of brass were bound to two iron pillars at the gate of the palace of the burnt offerings. Should anyone enter and learn the name when he left, the lions would roar at him, and immediately the valuable secret would be forgotten. Yeshu came and learned the letters of the name. He wrote them upon parchment, which he then placed in an open cut on his thigh, and then drew the flesh over the parchment. 
as he left the lion's ward, and he forgot the secret. But when he came to his house, he reopened the cut in his flesh with a knife and lifted out the writing. Then he remembered and obtained the use of the letters of God's ineffable name. He gathered about himself 310 young men of Israel and accused those who spoke ill of his birth of being people who desired greatness and power for themselves. Yeshu proclaimed, I am the Messiah. And concerning me, Isaiah prophesied and said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He quoted other messianic texts, insisting, David, my ancestor, prophesied concerning me. The Lord said to me, Thou art my son, to this, this day I have begotten thee. The insurgents that were with him, forgive me, I lost my place. The insurgents that were with him, in order to prove who he was, brought to him a lame man in the presence of the queen. Yeshua spoke the letters of the ineffable name, and a leper was healed. Thereupon they worshipped him as Messiah, son of the highest. When the word of these happenings came to Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin decided to bring about the capture of Yeshua. They sent messengers who were pretending to be his disciples, and they brought him an invitation from the leaders of Jerusalem to visit him. Yeshu consented on the condition that the members of the Sanhedrin would receive him as Lord. He started out toward Jerusalem and arriving at Nob, acquired an ass upon which he rode into Jerusalem as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. The sages bound him and led him before Queen Hela, Helena with the accusation, this man is a sorcerer and entices everyone. Yeshu replied, the prophets long ago prophesied of my coming, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and I am he. But as for them, Scripture said, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Queen Helena asked the sages, what does it say in your Torah? They replied, it is in our Torah, but it is not applicable to him. For it is in Scripture. And the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak or shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. He has not fulfilled the signs and the conditions of the Messiah. Yeshu spoke up, speaking to the queen. Madam, I am the Messiah, and I revive the dead. A dead body was brought in, and he pronounced the letters of the ineffable name, and the corpse came to life. The queen was greatly moved and said, this is a true sign. She reprimanded the sages and sent them humiliated from her presence. Yeshua's followers increased, and there was controversy in Israel. Yeshu went to Upper Galilee, and the sages came before the queen, complaining that Yeshu practiced sorcery and was leading everybody astray. Therefore, they sent two men to fetch him. They found him in Upper Galilee, proclaiming himself to be the Son of God. And when they tried to take him, there was a great struggle. But Yeshu said to the men of Upper Galilee, wage no battle. He would prove himself by the power which came to him from the Father in heaven, and he spoke the ineffable name over birds of clay, and they flew into the air. 
He spoke the same letter over a millstone, and it was placed on the waters, and he sat in it, and it floated like a boat. When they saw this, the people marveled. At the behest of Yeshu, the emissaries departed and reported these wonders to the queen, and she trembled with astonishment. The sages selected a man by the name of Judah Iscariotto. Does that sound familiar? And they brought him to the sanctuary where he learned the letters of the ineffable name, as Yeshu had done. When Yeshu was summoned before the queen this time, there were present also the sages and Judah Iscarioto. Yeshu said, it is spoken of me, I will ascend into heaven. And he lifted his arms and spoke the words and began to fly and hover in the air. They grabbed him and covered him, smote him with pomegranate staves, and he could do nothing because he no longer could speak the name. He was taken prisoner in the synagogue of Tiberias, and they bound him to a pillar. But to allay his thirst, they gave him vinegar to drink. On his head, they set a crown of thorns. There was strife and wrangling between the elders and the unrestrained followers of Yeshu. As a result, Yeshu escaped and went to the regions of Antioch, where he remained until the eve of the Passover. That year, the Passover came on a Sabbath day. And on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu, accompanied by his disciples, came to Jerusalem riding on an ass. Many bowed before him. He entered the temple with his 310 followers. One of them, Judas Iscarioto, apprised the sages that Yeshua was to be found in the temple, and the disciples had taken a vow by the Ten Commandments not to reveal his identity, but that he would point him out by bowing to him. And so it was done. Yeshua was seized. Asked his name, he replied to the question by giving various different names. Matai, Nakai, Bunai, Netzer, each time with a verse quoted by him and then a counter verse that was quoted by the sages. Yeshu was put to death on the sixth hour of the eve of Passover and of the Sabbath. When they tried to hang him on a tree, it broke, for he had possessed the power and had pronounced the ineffable name that no tree should hold him. He had failed to pronounce a prohibition over a carob stock, for it was a plant more than a tree, and on it he hung until the hour for afternoon prayer, for it is written in Scripture, his body shall not remain all night upon a tree. They buried him outside of the city. On the first day of the week, his bold followers came to Queen Helena with the report that he who was slain was truly the Messiah and that he was not in his grave any longer, that he had ascended to heaven as he had prophesied. Diligent search was made, and he was not found in the grave where he had been buried. A gardener had taken him from the grave and had brought him into his garden and buried him in the sand over which waters flowed into the garden. Queen Helena demanded on the threat of severe penalty that the body of Yeshu be shown to her within a period of three days. There was great distress. When the keeper of the garden saw Rabbi Tanhuma walking in the field and lamenting over the ultimatum of the queen, the gardener related what he had done. And in order that Yeshu's followers should not steal the body and then claim that he had ascended into heaven. So the sages removed the body tied it to the tail of a horse and transported it to the queen with these words. This is Yeshu, who is said to have ascended to heaven. 
Realizing that Yeshua was a false prophet who enticed people and led them astray, she mocked the followers but praised the sages. In spite of the fact that ancient Jews who wrote this did their best to argue for another interpretation of the life of Christ, they did make numerous claims about Jesus here that confirm what we know in Scripture. Kim, if you'd please come. Many of the elements of the Bible record are confirmed by these writers so that when we stand to give an account and people ask us, how do you know that Jesus was alive? We don't have to just refer to the Bible, but we have many different authors that were not Christians at all that proved these things. But in review, here's what we know. Jesus was born and lived in Palestine. He was born supposedly to a virgin and had an earthly father who was a carpenter. He was a teacher who taught that through repentance and belief, all followers would become brothers and sisters. He led the Jews away from their beliefs, and he was a wise man who claimed to be God and the Messiah. He had unusual magical powers and performed miraculous deeds. He healed the lame. He accurately predicted the future. He was persecuted by the Jews for what he said, betrayed by Judas Iscariot, or Judas Iscariot as we know. He was beaten with rods, forced to drink vinegar, forced to wear a crown of thorns, crucified on the eve of the Passover, and this crucifixion occurred under the direction of Pontius Pilate during the time of Tiberius. On the day of his crucifixion, the sky grew dark, and there was an earthquake. Afterwards, he was buried in a tomb, and the tomb was later found to be empty. He appeared to his disciples, resurrected from the grave, and showed them his wounds. These disciples then told others that Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Jesus' disciples and followers upheld a high moral code, and one of them was named Matthew. The disciples were also persecuted for their faith, but they were martyred without changing their claims. And to this day, they met regularly to worship Jesus, even after his death. Not bad for evidence without once using the Bible. And in the middle of this day and age in which we live, when people are skeptical, skeptical about the existence of Jesus and who he was, we don't have to take a circular approach that we can approach them and say, from your very own non-believing heart has been written by many others that prove the claims of Jesus Christ. So when anybody asks you, is there any evidence that Jesus existed outside of the Bible, we can say, oh yeah. And we can be loaded with the ammunition to defend our faith in a God who still today changes lives. Thank you, God, for proving yourself again and again to us through Jesus. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me this morning. If you would, please take your communion cups that you received when you came in. I knew today there wasn't going to be a lot of shouting hallelujah. Today's one of those days you feel like you've just endured a history class. Some of you enjoyed it. Some of you enjoyed playing games on your phone. But it was necessary knowledge for the skeptics in our world today 
And for those of you that may be on the fence and you're just not sure, you're trying to figure out who this Jesus is and what he has done and why he can make a difference, maybe you're a guest and you've saw people raising their hands and worshiping and praising the Lord and you're going, I, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. Let me, let me just tell you something. Every one of us came to Jesus the same way. We came because we were in need. I think Brooke mentioned it this morning as she was leading us in song. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. The reason we rejoice is because I'm not who I used to be. That which the Lord had seen in my life, that the reason I needed him, he came into my life and it tells us in scripture that he took my sins and he throws them as far as the east is from the west, that he remembers them against me no more. Some of you have, have a past that you're ashamed of. Let me tell you something. I serve a Jesus who's a past eraser. He erases it. It's gone because of what we're about to do in partaking of communion. So let me just ask you this question. With, if you just bow your heads for a moment and close your eyes, if you're here today and you have not received Jesus as your Savior, then I would ask that you do one of two things. Either you receive him today or that you would not participate in communion. Because the scripture warns us that if you don't have a relationship with the Lord, then, then this is just something you're going through and it, and it disgraces the name and sacrifice of the Lord. So if you're here today and you would like to receive Jesus as your Savior, I'm, I'm simply going to look around and I'm going to ask that you would just simply look up and when I see your eyes, I'm going to agree with you. I'm not going to embarrass you, but every one of us that know Jesus came the same way by acknowledging that we needed a savior and he is it. So I'm beginning on my right and your left and if you're here today and would love to know Jesus, would you just look up? Yes, sir, I agree with you. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Moving into the, to the left center section, my right section, yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Yes, sir, I agree with you. Moving now into the right center section, just a moment. All the way over to the far right, my, my far left, into the overflow. Yes, sir, I agree with you. If you're way in the back, you may need to raise a hand because I can't see back there. Anybody this morning? Yes, sir, I agree with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that as we rehearse the truth of the scriptures, as we're trying to figure out what is truth in the middle of a skeptical society, oh God, that you bring to us evidence that is outside of the Bible that strengthens the foundation of our life. And today, Lord, I am grateful for those who received you as Savior right now today. As their names are being written in the Lamb's book of life and as they ask you to come into their life, cleanse them of all of their sins so that they may enjoy this freedom that comes from a brand new life in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And now, Lord, we ask your blessing on our communion time. In Jesus' name. If you would separate the membrane and take in your hands the wafer representing the body of Jesus. Last week, many of you remember, we were on the subject of the truth in human sexuality. And in that, I brought scriptural proof that the body that we live in is important. It bears the fingerprints of God at creation. It's so important that he said he inhabits, he dwells in these temples that are our body. And it is so important that at the end, our bodies will be resurrected before him and we'll be given a glorified body. But our bodies were so important. Our bodies are so important to God that he gave Jesus a body. And in that body, we know, according to scripture, that when he faced crucifixion, that his body was beaten and broken for us. 
And he reminds the church that there needs to be regular times when we approach this moment recognizing that we are honoring our Savior. And as we lift this wafer before the Lord, we ask, Father God, would you bless this as we recognize it is a symbol of your broken body that we do remembering that because of the stripes that you suffered, the crown of thorns, the nails through your hands, that our salvation is available to us because you suffered an excruciating death because of my sin. You took my place. And so as we hold this, we ask your blessing upon it as we partake in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. I don't know about you, but as I was reading the Jewish version of the Gospels at the end I couldn't help but think that there was no mention of the blood of Jesus unbelievers want to stay away from that topic because so powerful is the blood so powerful is the blood there's an old song we used to sing what can wash away my sin nothing but the blood of Jesus so powerful is the symbol of what we hold in our hand that it transforms us from death to life. So, Father, as we ask your blessing over this symbol of your blood, we recognize that it is that which covers our wrong. It covers our sin. And we are made righteous as you switched places with us. You took the penalty and you suffered the death that our sin deserved, and you give to us the blessing of being joint heirs with you as we inherit heaven. And God is our Father, and for that, we can never say thank you enough. So bless this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. Hallelujah. I want to thank you for your patience with me this morning. I understand that this can be a bit dry. There's a lot for you, and for those of you that wanted to see all the quotes and where they are attributed to, please pick up a, uh, there's a several sheets stapled together. Everything is listed there. For those of you looking at the QR code, it's there for you. I want to make sure that we, we attribute these writings to the right people. I want you to be aware of that. But folks, we do not live in a day and age where we don't have something to say that is true. Everywhere the church goes, the joy of the Lord goes. So let's be joyful as we go. Let's go where God leads, engage in conversations when God provides opportunity, and watch what God does through people that are available. Father, I pray your blessing on this church, on your people. May we demonstrate your characteristics with great joy and happiness and give us opportunities to share about you. Even in a very skeptical world, we do not stand without truth, hope, and evidence. And we ask your blessing in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day in the Lord.